Everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app as we continue to roll through Romans, the greatest letter of all time, and the greatest evangelist of all time, the GOAT, St. Paul. And something really shocking that St. Paul says here, just at the end of chapter 2, I want, want to pick this up. He writes, and this is chapter 2, verse 25, so if you want to open your Bible to that section, Paul says, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. So when Paul talks about superstition here, and again, this is part of his overarching argument that he's trying to make here, saying that the pagans have a sin problem, but so do the Jews. And he starts talking about the fact that not every Jewish person has kept the entire law. Even though the the pagans have natural law and they don't keep that, the Jews had natural law plus supernatural law delivered by God, revealed by God, but they haven't been faithful in keeping it either. And we're not talking about the, the nation as a whole. We're talking about, you know, obviously every individual person falls short. So he just concludes this little section here at the end of chapter two by talking about the major outward marker of the Jewish identity, which is circumcision. Now, you might say, Kale, how is it an outward marker? Because circumcision of the foreskin, that's something that you normally don't see because people are wearing clothes. But don't forget, in the Roman Empire, and St. Paul is writing to Rome here, in the Roman Empire, most people don't have private bathrooms. Most people don't have their own showers or bathtubs. Some people did, some extremely wealthy people did. And on an archaeological dig I worked on in Jerusalem, we actually were excavating a high priestly mansion. These guys had their own bathtubs. They were living really high on the hog. But the vast majority of people, the hoi polloi, if you will, the unwashed masses, where, where are they getting washed? They're going to the public baths, the Roman bathhouses. And it would be pretty obvious to all the guys there who is Jewish and who is a Gentile. Pretty easy to tell. Now, sidebar question here. Sidebar question here. A lot of you ladies listening right now are probably asking the question, maybe some of the guys too. Well, if this was the outward sign of the covenant people of God, circumcision for the males, what about the women? What? How on earth were they part of the covenant community? This wasn't happening to them, obviously. Well, here's how it worked in the old covenant time. And it, and it admittedly was part of the ideal of a patriarchal society which was part of the the times it was it was the way things were back then and you can argue about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing but that was in fact the practice whenever the head of a household joined a religion became a member of any religion everybody else in the entire household does as well they enter the covenant community because the head of the household does this a great example of this is in Acts chapter 16, the Acts of the Apostles. Remember the Philippian jailer? 
sees this great miracle, this earthquake happens, the prison doors break open, but nobody leaves. And and he's getting ready to kill himself because he was responsible for all the prisoners who would have gone missing. Uh, he would have been uh, he would have been killed himself. He wanted to commit suicide. Paul says, "Stop! We're all still here." And he is just absolutely overwhelmed with the power of God. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He winds up getting baptized, of course, but not only him, his wife, his children, his servants, everybody who's a part of that family unit, that family enterprise, if you will, now becomes a Catholic Christian. And it's the same way when it comes to somebody, for example, becoming uh, a Jew in the old covenant period. So, one thing that Paul does here in Romans, and he's going to do this a lot, he, he always goes back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. And that's one of the reasons why we, very close to our uh, the start of our time here on the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio, one of the first books I studied with you was the book of Genesis. We did the Genesis series because it's really key to understanding so many other books in the Bible, if not every other book in the Bible. And the New Testament quotes Genesis an awful lot. So we see here in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, you can look this up. This is when God institutes the covenant of circumcision for the first time with Abraham. He cuts the covenant, if you will, with him, pun intended. So Abraham and his entire household, all the males, have to be circumcised. All the servants, too, all the male servants. Now imagine having a staff meeting with these guys. Abraham's like, listen, uh, got an announcement to make here. All of you are going to have to book... A little bit of time off here for uh, for some surgery. What? <laughs> well, people naturally ask the question, why of all things? Why is this a marker of the covenant? God could have done something else. What, why did he choose circumcision of the foreskin? Well, Scott Hahn once said, at least part of the answer, to him at least, was in this. When you, when you look at that part of the body... There's a great need for self-control in this area, in this area of human sexuality. And that is undoubtedly the case. All of us have to orient this part of our lives over to God as well. Now, don't get me wrong here. Circumcision is not part of the new covenant. One does not have to be circumcised to take part in the new covenant community of God, the church. More on that in just a second. But Jesus has to be Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. So we have to bring all areas of our life, our work, our relationships, our pocketbook, everything has to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, including our sexuality. It has to be under God's purview and control. That's one answer to the question, why circumcision in the Old Covenant? But it also points to something else. We also have to circumcise our hearts. And this is something Paul talks about. Later in the New Testament, he talks about in Colossians chapter 2. But this is not just a New Testament idea. Paul is not making this up, this concept of circumcision of the heart. That's what God's really looking for. This is in the Old Testament. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, for example. There, I don't have time to get into all, all the quotations from the Old Testament, but Paul did not invent this. This is something that God foresaw would happen in the future. With the new covenant, God's covenant people began to expand into the Gentiles, the, the other peoples of the world. And this issue of circumcision of the body becomes a huge problem in the early church. Because when Gentiles believe the good news about Jesus Christ, does that mean that they have to become, in, in essence, Jewish first before they can become believers in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus? Do they have to undergo 
circumcision for the males? Do they have to keep the ceremonial works of the law, the kosher food laws, all that stuff? That's a big question because if you're telling somebody uh, you can't have a bacon burger anymore, that's one thing. But if you're telling people you have to have an operation to join this church, some people might not want to do this. They might think twice. So you might say, well, that's weeding out those who are serious from those who aren't. But on a, on a practical level, it makes evangelization a lot more difficult. And that's exactly what was talked about at the Council of Jerusalem, if you will, the very first church council, ecumenical council that's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. And of course, the answer was the Holy Spirit guided the church to say, no, the Gentiles do not need to undergo circumcision to enter the new covenant people of God because circumcision is replaced by baptism as the sacrament of initiation into the new covenant. But back, back, to, back to this argument from St. Paul here. What, what he's essentially saying here, and, and again, it's hard to understate, as Scott Hahn talks about in his commentary on Romans, it's hard to understate how shocking this would have been to St. Paul's Jewish readers or his Jewish Christian readers. He says, your circumcision is, re- is regarded as uncircumcision when you break the law. It's like you're reversing the operation, if you will. The uncircumcised man, in other words, the Gentile, the pagan Gentile, when he keeps the law, he is regarded by God as if he is circumcised. And he can actually sit in judgment of you and condemn you, the person who knows the law, the revealed law of God, and you're circumcised because he's actually keeping it and you're not. And so this is a really, really important thing. And that's why he says in verse 28, and it's it, this is crucial for us to see this. Paul says, for he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Now, Paul's actually creating an, an amazing pun here. It's really, really well done. Because when he says his praise, this person's praise, who is doing the will of God, is not from men, but from God. Now, it's the, the whole term, the Jews, actually comes from the tribe of Judah. Now, the people of God as a whole in the Old Covenant, they're actually Israelites, but there are the 10 northern tribes. And remember, when the Assyrians invaded, they carried away the 10 northern tribes, and supposedly th- these tribes were lost forever. These are the quote-unquote lost tribes of Israel. But are they really lost? The answer is actually no. And Paul reveals how they are found in Romans. But we'll get to that when we get to that. That comes a bit bit later, but it's really exciting. So in the south, what remained were the southern tribes. Judah, the tribe of Judah. And of course, Jesus hails from the tribe of Judah. According to his human nature, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, there's a tribe of Benjamin as well. And Paul is, is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah, And in the south, that's where Jerusalem is. And don't forget, in 586 BC, just as the Assyrians invaded the north way back, the Babylonians in 586 invade the south. They ransack the temple, they destroy the temple built by Solomon, and they carry away the Jews. They become known as the Jews because they're mostly from the tribe of Judah, and they carry them away into the Babylonian exile. This is a disaster. We we mentioned this a little bit in the last episode. And so that's where that name comes from. But the name Judah, of course, one of the sons of Israel, 
one of the, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes, the name Judah and the tribe Judah. Judah means praise. And that's why it's a great pun from Paul. When Paul says the person who's actually doing God's will and, and keeping his laws, whether he comes from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, doesn't matter. His praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, he's the true Jew, the true Judah that praises God with his life. And so this is uh, incredible stuff from St. Paul and very funny as well. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right. The application for us, obviously, is this. When it comes to our Catholic faith, so many of us are. And I was one of these people. And we, we all have to fight against us all the time. Being Catholic in name only. It's so easy just to pull out our baptismal certificate and say, look, I'm Catholic. I'm in. I've got the paperwork to prove it. That is not enough for salvation. It's not enough. As we spoke about before, like American Express, membership has its privileges, but also its responsibilities. Just being in the family doesn't cut it all by itself. It gives you the capacity to do more, but you have to live up to the teaching of God, and God's going to give you his grace to do it. Just like in the Old Covenant, simply being circumcised, simply being part of the, the Old Covenant people of God, it's not enough. You have to live it out, and, and we have to live it out too. We can't do it without the grace of Jesus Christ, and that's really the essence of Paul's message here in the early chapters of Romans. All right, now let's go into chapter 3. And, and this we've had a lot of bad news here. We're going to end the bad news. This, this is the very last of the bad news before Paul gets into the good news of the gospel. So let's look at chapter 3, the very beginning. And this is really the last piece of Paul's argument here. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man be false, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, so let's, let's pick up this argument here. Okay, if in chapter 1, Paul was talking about the pagan world, and they have a huge problem with sin, obviously. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the Jewish world, and they have a problem with sin as well. Despite the fact, okay, the pagans have the natural law, they're not living up to that. And the Jews have the natural plus the supernatural law of God, the revealed law of Moses. They, they're not living up to that in many cases. So who's he talking about now? Well, he's he's again talking to a Jewish person, but this this person, I guess you could say, has become a religious skeptic. This person is essentially saying, all right, what's the point then, Paul? If we're all in the same boat, Jew or Gentile, if we're all doomed to destruction because of sin, what, what's even the point uh, of belonging to the old covenant people of God? What's the point of following all these commandments? What What's the point of even knowing the law of Moses? Does it really make a difference? And Paul says, Absolutely. 
There's a huge advantage to being Jewish. He says, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? The wisdom of God, the teaching of God, the revelation of God. No other nation on the face of the earth actually had this. And, and God made a sovereign choice. He, he could have chosen any group on the face of the earth. He picked the Jews. He sovereignly made that decision. And he used them to, to begin to reveal himself to the world. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations. And ultimately, he was going to become one of them in the person of Jesus Christ and then open up this true religion to all the peoples of the world. Really, Catholicism is Judaism with the Messiah having come. And then it becomes Catholic. Then it becomes universal. But God does not get rid of his old covenant people, as we'll see. But the bottom line, though, is this was undeserved. They didn't earn it. This was a grace that was given to the Jewish people. And were they better off for knowing the commandments, even if they weren't keeping them? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Some people in life, and let's face it, some people in life truly believes that ignorance is bliss when it comes to religion. Some people say things like, I wish I never knew the teaching of God, because then I could just kind of live a pagan lifestyle. I wouldn't be accountable to anybody. I could just do whatever I want to. No, this is absolutely wrong-headed thinking to the extreme, because what you don't know can hurt you. you know, as, as has been often said, it's kind of a, a cheesy preacher's line, but it's true. No one ever breaks the commandments. They only break themselves against them because this is the way that life works. This is the owner's manual for life by, by God who, who owns life and death. He's got the keys of death and Hades, as it says about Jesus in the book of Revelation. And, and Peter Kreeft has this experiment. And I, and I used to use this when I talked to engage couples, pre-Cana classes, if you will. And, and he calls these the ABCs of love. These are the things that love naturally does when it's true to its own nature, when it's real love. You put the lover first. I used to say this to, to uh, married couples or couples who are going to be married. <clears throat> How would you like to be loved like this? You put your lover first. The other person puts you first. You don't use this person as a tool, as a means to another end. For example, they're wealthy and they come from a wealthy family. That's why I'm marrying this person. No, you love them for who they are. You do not insult that person. You take the time to be with them. You, you honor that person and their family. You respect that person's life. You respect their body. You respect their property. You respect their mind. You don't lie to this person. You are content with your lover. How would you guys like to be loved by this? I would ask the couples. They'd be like, yeah, 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 this is great. And then I say, well, what I've actually shared with you is the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. You put your lover first. Do not make idols. Don't use this person as a tool, as a means to another end. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You don't insult him. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. You take time to be with this person. Honor your father and mother. You honor him and his family or her and her family. Do not kill. You respect this person's life. Do not commit adultery. You respect this person's body. Do not steal. Respect their property. Do not lie. Respect their mind. Do not covet your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's spouse. You are content with your lover. So th this is not, these are not draconian rules imposed on us. This is love. And so it, it is a huge bonus to have these truths. Knowing them is a huge advantage. And this is what Paul wants to say here. We'll have much more on this in the next episode of our Roman series here on The Faith Explained. But right now, let's dip into 
our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag segment, I want to remind you once again that you can send in your question to me. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, and you can also find me on the x.com app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E, and try to get your question to me that way. Uh, this question comes to me from Chandler, who's uh, written in before, and he had, he had three questions for me. I've already answered one of them. Another question that Chandler had, and I really appreciate these questions. They're really good. He says, I feel, Kale, like you have talked about this before, but I hear so often that Christianity came about from paganism, and all of our holidays are intertwined with paganism. However, I thought I heard you mention that Christianity predates paganism. Can you help me understand where these rumors come from? What is the truth? Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for that question, Chandler. And, and I would say it, it, Christianity does not predate paganism in a certain sense because uh, paganism was around before Christianity uh, began. Having said that, there are a lot of pagan religious deities and pagan um, personages, if you will, that people think Christianity borrowed from. And they use these stories, quote unquote, to try to construct Jesus and kind of build his story out of whole cloth. That's not the case. That's not the case. But one, one of the people that you might have heard of is a guy named Apollonius. Who is Apollonius? Apollonius of Tyana. Now, he's an actual historical figure. And I'm going to let um, scholar Gregory Boyd kind of explain this. And Boyd says that Quote, here's someone from the first century who is said to have healed people and to have exercised demons, who may have raised a young girl from the dead, and who appeared to some of his followers after he died. And people point to that and say, aha, aha, if this is legendary, this story about Apollonius, why not say the same thing about Jesus, end of quote. Well, for a lot of you listening, you probably never even heard of Apollonius of Tyana, but if you read his alleged life story, it does sound pretty similar to Jesus. So the implication is maybe the Christians borrowed this from Apollonius. Well, that's not the case. There are some parallels here, but they don't hold up. Why is this? Well, as Boyd explains, the biographer of Apollonius of Tyana was a guy named Philostratus. He wrote a century and a half after the life of this guy. Now, that's a long time. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus Christ, they were written within one generation of the life of Jesus on earth. So we just know that the closer something is written, like a biography, in time to the lifetime of this individual, the more likely it is that the facts have been kept straight because there are eyewitnesses who are still alive and walking around. And there were plenty of them, thousands of them eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus when the New Testament documents came out. So there's less time for any kind of legends to accrue or anything like that. It takes much more than one generation for legends to get going. We don't have that with Jesus. There wasn't enough time. Not the case with this guy, Apollonius. Now, we also have four Gospels. We have four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. We also have the writings of St. Paul that talk about the life of Jesus. Josephus, not other non-Christian historians and figures wrote about the life of Jesus. So, so there's lots of evidence for his life with this guy Apollonius. There's only one source. That doesn't mean that's necessarily wrong, but the, the fact that there's only one source does kind of call it into question. It'd be nice to have more sources. 
Now, here's the kicker, though. This guy, Philostratus, who wrote this biography of Apollonius, he actually was hired to do this. Now, who hired him to do it? An empress. And she was very devoted to Apollonius. In fact, she wanted to dedicate a temple to this guy. So Philostratus, as he's writing the biography of Apollonius, he has a motive to embellish the story and make it sound really, really good because she wants it to be awesome. <laughs> Not the case with the gospel writers. They had everything to lose, no gain, humanly speaking, from telling about Jesus Christ. They all paid for it with their lives in grisly ways, except for John. Not that he had it easy either, but the motives were very different. Also, Gregory Boyd says that the way that Philostratus writes about Apollonius, it's a lot different from the Gospels. He has a lot of statements in there like, well, you know, people say that he did this, that, or the other thing. Some people say this young girl had died. Others say she was just sick and he allegedly brought her back to life. So he doesn't exactly seem like he wants to commit to this guy being a wonder worker, Apollonius. But here's the thing, and this is maybe the death knell to this comparison. Philostratus wrote in the early third century in Cappadocia. You've probably heard about Cappadocian Christians. Christianity had already been flourishing there for some time. So here's the deal. If anybody's doing any borrowing, he is borrowing from the Catholic Christian faith, from the accounts of the life of Jesus that were already out there. It's way after the lifetime of Jesus and how the early church got going. So the comparisons don't really hold any water. But even, even if Apollonius did do outstanding miracles, that, that, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't. You have to take Jesus's life on its own merits. So at any rate, th this stuff is later. It's after Christ. That's, a, that's a, a pagan comparison, if you will. It's often made to Christianity. People think Christianity stole from this. Not the case. If anything, it's the other way around. And it's the same thing when it comes to the mystery religions. There are certain mystery religions out there that people think that Christians borrowed from when constructing the Gospels. No. Again, these were later than the Gospels. This idea of dying and rising gods. And this has nothing to do with the resurrection. When, when the pagan religions have this stuff in them, this has to do with the cycle of nature. Crops, they die in the fall. Plants come back to life in the springtime. This has nothing to do with the physical resurrection of a person, for which there is evidence, by the way, historical evidence. And don't forget, the, the first Christians were Jewish. They absolutely abhorred paganism and fought against it every step of the way. They're not going to believe pagan stories or stories borrowed from paganism about, about somebody who says that they're the Messiah. No, this is nothing to do with paganism. So again, if there's any borrowing, it comes the other way. Any, any parallels from mystery religions that, that have to do with dying and rising gods come from the second century at the earliest, second century AD. So again, they're borrowing from Christianity, if anything. So very, very good question. And uh, it's not the case. It's not the case. You have nothing to worry about on that front. But you do hear an awful lot about this, especially at Easter time. Did the Catholic Church steal ideas from pagan religions when telling the stories about Jesus. And that's not that's not true at all. These predate those false pagan myths. And these, the Christian accounts about Jesus, are based in actual historical reality. I'm Cale Clark for The Faith Explained. You can send your question into me for the mailbag. The address is faith at relevantradio.com via email. 
or you can send me a message on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with me. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central on the Kale Clark Show and tomorrow once again on the Faith Explained or anytime on the podcast on the Relevant Radio app and relevantradio.com. God bless you.